Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature, including descriptions of physical and sexual violence against adults, children, and animals. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, I'm Tanya. And I'm Talia. And we are Crimes and Consequences, a true crime podcast. Hi Talia. Hi Tanya. How are you doing today? Today is an awesome day. How awesome. are you? Awesome. Are you going to sing for me? Yes, I'm going to sing for a change. Oh, good. <laughs> Keep going. I like Prince, Motley Crue. <laughs> you name it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Crimes and Consequences. Before I begin today's story, I would just like to remind everyone to please hit subscribe or follow on whatever app you're listening to. And with that, enough chit chat. We'll yeah, get to just it. Stop talking. <laughs> I mean, just keep talking. I'll stop talking is what I meant to say. That's what I meant to say. On Wednesday, February 4th, 1998, 21-year-old Misty McGugan was reported missing. She was last seen by her family on Friday, January 30th, so several days prior, when she dropped off her two-year-old son to spend the weekend at her grandmother's house in Chickasaw, Alabama. I hope I'm saying that right. Probably not, but that's okay. Misty was scheduled to pick up her son on Monday morning, but she never did. Her family initially searched for her themselves, but after they found her car abandoned in the parking lot of the Drifters Lounge in Baldwin County, Alabama, they filed a missing persons report with the county sheriff's department. So Drifters Lounge, I'm assuming, is a bar? Mm-hmm. It is a bar. Misty had been employed by Abigail's escort service, and her alias at the escort service was Tasha. The manager of Abigail's escort service, his name was James Ashley Lee. He told investigators that he had spoken with Misty on Saturday, January 31st, 1998. So this was the day after her family had last seen her. Specifically, James told them that on Saturday evening, he received a call from a man who identified himself as Mark Evans, and he asked for Misty. James said that Mark Evans was one of Misty's regular clients and that he often telephoned the agency to get in touch with her. The man who called for Misty said he was at the Woody's Motel in room 18 and he wanted her to come over. The Woody's I know, Motel? Woody's. Okay. I just picture like a huge dump of a motel. James called Misty to tell her that she had a client and she came to the agency 
telephoned Woody's motel, spoke with someone, and then told James she was going to go. Misty went to the motel at about 9 p.m. that night, and pursuant to their safety procedures, she telephoned James when she arrived, and she told him she knew the man and everything was fine. She was never heard from again. Sergeant John Stewart of the Baldwin County Sheriff's Department investigated Misty's disappearance. During his investigation, he discovered that Misty had been friends with a man named Mark Evans, who she originally met through the escort service, and that she had babysat for his kids on Friday, January 30th, 1998, so the day before she was last seen. Wait a second. She's babysitting for her client's kids? Mm-hmm. Okay. The confidential informant told Sergeant Stewart that he knew Misty and had seen her at approximately 3 a.m. on the morning of February 1st. She was at a nightclub called Solomon's. The informant had seen Misty with two men. The descriptions the informant had given matched the description of two people that Sergeant Stewart had found were friends with Misty. One was Mark Evans and one was named Robert Ernest Lee not to be confused with James Lee, who's the manager of the escort service. Sergeant Stewart put together two photo lineups for the informant, but that person wasn't able to positively identify anyone in the lineup. As a result of the information received from James Lee, the manager of Abigail's, Sergeant Stewart visited Woody's motel and got the registration card from room 18 for the night of January 31st. Yeah, who paid for the room? Well, the card said it was Mark Evans. However, Sergeant Stewart was suspicious that the person who had rented room 18 on that night was not the Mark Evans who had been friends with Misty. Specifically, he found that while the registration card listed the correct address for Mark Evans, the name of the street was misspelled and the zip code was incorrect. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. No. (laughs) And you just told me they're friends. Mm -hmm. So why is he calling the service if he wants to meet up with her? Right. In addition, the social security number that was listed on the card wasn't Mark Evans's number. It was the social security number of someone who lived in another state. Eventually, Sergeant Stewart spoke with Mark Evans about Misty's disappearance. He had an alibi for the night of January 31st, and after he confirmed the alibi, Sergeant Stewart said he no longer considered Mark a suspect. So who the hell's using Mark's name? Oh, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Yeah, you are. Yeah, I will. You are. Two months later, in April 1998, Officer Donald Pears with the Mobile Police Department was investigating the murder of a woman from Mobile. Her name was Kathleen Bracken. Kathleen's body had been discovered at the Twilight Motel in Mobile on the evening of April 11th into the early morning hours of April 12th, so it's like the same evening. How far away are the two cities? They're in different counties, so... They are a little bit away from each other. And they still haven't found Misty? No, they still have not found her at this point. Kathleen had been employed at an escort service. It was a different one that employed Misty. How many escort services are there in Alabama? I know. How many escort services are there, period? I don't know, but Alabama doesn't have a high population. Apparently there's several. There's at least two. Wow. Okay. (laughs) And the night before her body was discovered, she had been with a man named Patrick. One of Kathleen's co-workers gave Officer Pears a description of Patrick, and that description led Officer Pears to Gerald Patrick Lewis. 
Gerald was arrested for Kathleen's murder a couple days later on April 14th. Two weeks after that, on April 27th, at about 4 p.m., Gerald telephoned Officer Pears from the Mobile Metro Jail and asked to speak with him. So Officer Pears immediately goes over to the jail because he's like, this guy wants to talk. I better get over there. Before talking to him, however, Officer Pears advised Gerald of his Miranda rights. Gerald agreed to waive his rights and he signed a waiver of rights form. Gerald then gave a statement to Officer Pears in which he confessed to murdering both Misty and Kathleen. The confession was videotaped. Gerald gave the following confession regarding Misty's death. He said it was Friday or Saturday night in late January or early February, and he rented a room at Woody's Motel. Before he left home, he picked a name out of a phone book, Mark something, to use when he was going to register at the motel. When asked if the name was Mark Evans, Gerald said, yeah, that's it. But he said he didn't know anyone named Mark Evans. That's so random that it ended up being her friend's name. I know. Isn't that crazy? That is insane. Right. He said he just randomly picked this name. When he checked in at the motel around 11.30 p.m., the desk clerk asked for identification, but he obviously didn't have any with the name Mark Evans. So when he said that to the clerk, the clerk made him write down his social security number, and he just made one up. (laughs) That's real secure. (laughs) I'm thinking that the security at Woody's probably wasn't that tight. I don't think so. probably weren't all that firm and needing information. I'm thinking Woody's might be a place you can rent by the hour, too. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. After he checked in, he telephoned several escort services using the name Mark Evans, and he really wanted a girl to come to his room. All but one of the services he contacted refused to send anyone to Woody's Motel. However, eventually he spoke with a woman at Casey's Escort Service, which seems kind of weird because he I spoke... Abigail's. And he spoke with James Lee, not a woman. Oh, yeah. And it was Abigail's. And it was Abigail's. And that person agreed to send someone to his room. A girl called him a few minutes later, talked to him, and then told him she was going to be there shortly. Misty arrived at approximately 1 a.m. Gerald had never met Misty prior to that night. Once she got there, she telephoned her service and told them everything was fine. Gerald paid her $150, and then they had sex. Afterward, as Misty was getting dressed to leave, Gerald decided he wasn't going to let her leave because he needed that $150 he had paid her to help pay for his lawyer. For what? I'm not sure exactly, but I think it was a drunk driving. Okay. At that point, he grabbed Misty and began strangling her with his hands. Misty fought back and pleaded with him not to hurt her. However, he continued strangling her, first with his hands and then with a white nylon rope he had brought from home and hidden underneath the bed in the motel room. When he stopped strangling her, she was still breathing, so he took a knife that he had brought with him from home and hidden behind the headboard of the bed. He stabbed Misty three times in the chest. At that point, she quit fighting him, but she was still breathing. Gerald wrapped Misty in a blanket and dragged her out of the motel room to the parking lot. She was bleeding a lot, and there was a trail of blood from the room to the parking lot. He decided not to put her in the back of his pickup truck because he didn't want anyone to see her, so he put her in her car. Because she was bleeding, Gerald got a tarp from his truck and placed it in the back seat of her car so that no blood would get in the car. And I'm thinking she's got like a sedan, so how are they not going to see her in the car? 
Why is he putting a tarp there so she doesn't bleed on her own seats? That's a good question. Thank you. Then he put Misty on top of the tarp and wrapped her in it. He left her in the car while he drove his truck to the drifter's lounge parking lot, and he walked back to the motel. When he got back to the motel, Misty is still in her car, and he goes into the motel room to try to clean it up. He tried to clean up a blood stain that was on the carpet where he had stabbed Misty, but he wasn't able to get it all out, so he just moved a chair in the room over the stain to cover it. He also tried to wipe his fingerprints off everything in the room and took several items out of the room, including an ashtray, the towel he had used to try to clean up the blood stain, some beer that he had brought with him, he said it was Budweiser, and Misty's purse. After cleaning up the room as best as he could, he drove Misty's car into the woods. As he was driving, he heard her coughing in the back seat, so he stopped the car, got out, and tightened the rope around her neck until she stopped coughing. He then continued into the woods. After he found a spot that he liked, he took Misty out of the car and put her near the edge of the woods. By then she was dead, and at this point he had sex with her body. Of course he did. Yes. Absolutely. That's why it's crimes and consequences. Yes, of course, right? How do we find these cases? <sighs> Who knew that sex with dead bodies was so popular? You know, he's like, well, she's still warm, so. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Thanks, Tanya. I'm positive that's what he thought. And you'll know why after I tell you something else later. Oh, God. When he was done, he dragged her further into the woods and then left her there. He said he was pretty sure she was dead when he left because by then her body was cold and her face began to turn purple. Gerald then drove her car to a Walmart parking lot in Daphne. On the way, he stopped at a gas station and he put the tarp he had used in the car in a dumpster. When he arrived at the Walmart store, he searched Misty's car and then drove it to the drifter's lounge where his car was parked. And that's where they ended up finding her car, if you remember. He did take several items out of her car, including a pink ponytail holder, a Zippo lighter, several pens, and approximately 100 bucks that he found. And he then went home in his truck. When he got there, he went into the attic. I don't know why. And that's where he searched her purse, where he found another $150, the $150 that he had paid her. So he took her purse too? Mm-hmm. Okay. The next day, he threw her purse in the woods. However, he kept the ponytail holder, the lighter, and the pens that he had taken from her car. He said the ponytail holder was in the nightstand next to his bed and that the lighter was in his toolbox. Gerald also admitted to two other incidents in Baldwin County. First, he said that on March 17th, so this was about six weeks after he killed Misty, he was parked in the parking lot of a Walmart store in Daphne, probably the same one that he had left her car initially. And he was watching people go in and out of the store when he saw a woman who he later learned was Stephanie Grayson. She was coming out of the store. When he saw Stephanie, he decided he was going to follow her and kidnap her. He followed her for a while, and then he intentionally rammed the back of her car in order to get her to stop. Wow, I've seen stories about that. That's so creepy. It's so scary. Because you're going to stop. You, of course. He had a knife with him, and he planned to kidnap her. However, his plan was spoiled when a woman nearby witnessed the collision and she called the police. Second, Gerald stated that sometime after the incident with Stephanie, he wasn't sure about the date, 
He was again parked in the parking lot of the Walmart store in Daphne when he saw a woman leave her car unlocked and go into the store. Gerald said that he took his knife and got in the back seat of the woman's car and waited for her. That reminds me of our episode, I think it was episode 101, Timothy Kreicher, the serial killer. Yeah, He was in all the Walmart and Kroger waiting for people. Creepy. Creepy. Like your cars, everyone. When she came out of the store and she saw him, she screamed, and she got pretty close to her car. I don't think she actually got in, but she screamed and ran back into the store. Gerald left and admitted he had intended to kidnap, rape, and murder her. After Gerald made his statement, Officer Pears notified the Baldwin County Sheriff's Department regarding his confession. And in the confession, too, he offered to show investigators where he had left Misty's body. So Officer Pears is the one that investigated Kathleen, and now he's trying to reach Baldwin County. Just to clear it up with everyone, because I got it a little confused, too. He's trying to connect the dots between the two murders, yes, right? Yes, yes. Officer Pears arranged to transport Gerald to Baldwin County that night to meet with investigators and then have Gerald take them to Misty's body. Officer Pears and Gerald met Sergeant Stewart and other investigators in the parking lot of a department store in Daphne on the evening of April 27th. Gerald directed the officers to where he had left Misty's body They found severely decomposed human remains, which were later identified as Misty, using her dental records. So they found them where he said? Yes. Even though he said so many other things that didn't seem to match? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Misty's body was found in a fetal position. A piece of cloth, like a blouse or a sweater, was on the chest area. A single strand of white nylon rope was entwined in her hair. A pair of women's slacks and women's underwear were found about 10 feet from the body, and several Budweiser brand beer bottles were found in the area. Several days later, when investigators searched the area again, an earring that was later identified by Misty's stepmother as belonging to Misty, and a kitchen-type knife were discovered near where the body had been found. Poor Misty. I know. She was alive in the back seat for a while. Yes. Long enough for him to go to drifters, right? Right. Damn. I know. Yeah, he was running around, dumping his truck off, and she's in the back seat. Just sad. Julia Gooden, a forensic pathologist with the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences, performed the autopsy on Misty's remains on April 28th, the day after they found her body. Because of the severely decomposed state of the remains, the cause of death was unknown, but Dr. Gooden believed the manner of death was definitely a homicide, because of the white nylon rope found in her hair, which obviously indicates she could have been strangled, and because the sweater that was found on her chest had cuts in it that were consistent with stabbing. One of the cuts on the sweater was just below the heart in the upper abdominal area, and a cut in that area would cause bleeding, but it wouldn't have been fatal. Another cut on the sweater was on the right side near the rib cage, the liver, and the lungs. Dr. Gooden found no evidence of injury to her ribs. An anthropologist who does skeletal analysis from the Alabama Department of Forensic Science also studied Misty's remains. She said that she found several fractures on the facial bones, which she described as perimortem, or inflicted close to the time of death. So So she was beaten, beaten. too. Yes. He didn't mention that in his confession, I know, funny enough, right? After Misty's body was found... 
Gerald was taken back to the Mobile Police Department headquarters and interviewed a second time, this by both Officer Pierce and Sergeant Stewart. He was again advised of his Miranda rights and again signed a waiver of rights form. Gerald's second statement to police was videotaped and a redacted version of the tape was played for the jury during this trial. During the second interview with police, Gerald gave the details of Misty's murder once again, but he also then included details regarding Kathleen Bracken's murder, which occurred in April 1998, a couple of months after Misty. Yeah, and you didn't tell me how she died yet, did you? And she was the first body that was found that I told you about. Gerald met Kathleen at a local bar when he was sitting in his car, drunk. Wasn't she an escort, though? Yes. She asked him what he was doing sitting in his car alone, and he said, I'm about to go back inside, and I'm looking for a girl. She said, search no longer. Here I am. We can go back to my motel. He's like, great. So they get to the hotel, and Kathleen tells him it's going to be $100. Gerald got angry and told her he wasn't paying, and he stormed out. He really wanted to get laid, though, and he came back after a little while and tried to get Kathleen to lower her price, but she wouldn't. Kathleen was nude at the time because right before Gerald had come back, another guy left her motel room. So she just hadn't gotten dressed yet. And she answered the door? And she, yes, she answered the door. She was nude because in the court records, it did state that she was basically standing in the doorway nude and there were people in the parking lot that were like yelling at her, like, get some clothes on and things like that. And she just didn't care. Wow, that's weird. Because she wouldn't lower her price... Gerald again started to leave the motel room, and when his back was turned, Kathleen hit him in the back of his head and kicked him. Not sure why. Maybe because he's wasting her time. He turned around and pushed her away from him, and she bit his finger. He got angry with this and grabbed her by the neck and squeezed. He said he heard a crunch in her neck. And they are back in the hotel room, by the way. I was going to say, is the door still open? Yes, no, the door is not open. They have shut it. Kathleen passed out, and after a few minutes, she came to again. She was laying on the bed, so Gerald straddled her and punched her in her face as hard as he could. This punch knocked her out. So Gerald gets off her body, and he's looking at her. She's nude, like I said, and he decides he's going to rape her while she's unconscious. While he's having sex with her, she starts to come too, so he starts to choke her with both his hands while he's still having sex with her. When he gets done, Kathleen was again unconscious due to the choking, but her eyes were open and staring at the ceiling. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. That's odd. Very. Gerald got dressed and. As he was dressing, he found some money on the floor and he takes it. Are you sure she's not dead? I'm sure she's not dead. He glanced again at Kathleen on the bed and thought, maybe I did kill her, but when he touched her, she felt warm. The warmth of her body made him wonder, okay, maybe she's still alive. So he put his head to her chest and listened for a heartbeat. Her heart was still beating, slowly. So he pulls out his knife that he had on him, and he stabbed her in the chest. He did it, like, really slowly. 
He stabbed her a couple more times, and after each stab, he would listen to her heartbeat until it finally stopped. Wouldn't you just have to stab her once in the heart? You would think. And that would probably get it to Mm -hmm. stop. Maybe it was quick. He looked at her face again, and her eyes were still open, but now he was sure she was dead. He took the knife again, and he dragged it against her skin, and she didn't bleed. So he was positive. Okay, now she is dead. He then made superficial cuts on her face, neck, chest, breast, stomach, and legs. Just for so he the, mutilated her just for fun. Just oh, I don't just know. Just for kicks. Yeah, just for kicks. As a result of this confession, the next day, April 28th, Sergeant Stewart executed a search warrant for Gerald's home. He found a Zippo brand lighter matching the description that Gerald had given him of the lighter he had taken from Misty's car. He found a white ponytail holder and several pens. They were found in the nightstand next to Gerald's bed, just like he said. In addition, Sergeant Stewart found a copy of the Mobile Register, dated April 13th, and in it was an article about Kathleen Bracken's murder. On April 30th, Sergeant Stewart executed a search warrant at Woody's Motel, finally, for room 18. A bloodstain was found on the carpet in the location where Gerald had said it would be. The Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences analyzed several of the items that were collected. Like, for example, they examined a piece of carpet taken from room 18, cigarette butts that were found in Misty's car, several Budweiser beer bottles that were found near Misty's body, and a piece of Misty's hair. They did also examine her clothing. They tested these items for nuclear DNA, but they weren't able to get a large enough sample. And so they sent them to the FBI for the mitochondrial DNA, the mtDNA testing. I guess it's a little more advanced. They ended up finding that the blood on the carpet in Woody's motel was Misty's. One of the cigarette butts they took from her car matched Gerald's DNA, but another one was male, but it wasn't Gerald. So they were able to link Gerald to the hotel room by DNA and to Misty. I was convinced when he took him to her body. Where her body was? Oh, yeah, for sure, right. During Gerald's ensuing trial, the prosecution presented testimony regarding the other two incidents that I told you about in which he confessed, the attempted kidnappings and Daphne. Stephanie Grayson testified to the attempted kidnapping where he rammed into her car. During her testimony, she said Gerald reeked of alcohol, and he tried to convince her not to call the police by telling her he didn't have car insurance. He then told her, my truck won't start. Can you give me a ride home? And she's like, no. Oh, hell no. Fuck no. (laughs) Fuck no. He's trying anything to get her into his truck. Oh, goddamn. (laughs) What the hell? At that point, a woman who lived nearby and witnessed the incident came out of her house and hollered to them that she had called the police. After Gerald heard the police were on their way, he got back into his truck and, surprise, surprise, it started working. (laughs) Funny how that happens. Mm -hmm. The woman who Gerald attempted to abduct at Walmart by hiding in her car also testified for the prosecution. She described it exactly as he did. He was waiting inside her unlocked car when she came out. And thankfully, she was able to run back into Walmart and call the police. By the time the police came, though, he was gone. One of the last witnesses the prosecution presented was from a clinical psychologist whose name is Von Seal Smith. 
He was ordered by the court to evaluate Gerald to determine his competency to stand trial because Gerald has pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. He seemed pretty coherent in his confession. Right. Dr. Smith also had to determine if Gerald was competent enough to be able to waive his Miranda rights. Dr. Smith testified that as part of her evaluation, she looked at records from a mental hospital in Massachusetts where Gerald had been a patient for for five years. Oh, my goodness. Right. And I'll go into that in a little bit. She looked at that, the district attorney's files, and the defense attorney's files. She attempted to interview Gerald on two different occasions, but he refused to cooperate both times. He told her he didn't know what the date was or his age, and he didn't understand the criminal justice system. Hey, I'm sorry. I Me too. I mean, that's about me right there. I don't know the date. I'm not sure my age, and as a lawyer, I still don't understand the criminal justice system. Well, he was also having hallucinations, he told her, so you don't have that, do you? No, not since college. <laughs> However, after she has this talk with Gerald, she's convinced that he's faking his symptoms. She believed he was unresponsive and uncooperative with her intentionally, and not because he suffered from any intellectual or cognitive disabilities, but it was so she would think that he was mentally incompetent. But she's like, no, he's fine. The defense called a few witnesses at trial. I'm not going to tell you about all of them. I'm just going to tell you about the two most interesting ones. One was Mark Evans. Mark. Yes. So coincidental. I know. So surprising. Crazy. Odd. He testified at court that he had met Misty at a Circle K convenience store near his home, and they had become friends and eventually started dating. He denied meeting her through Abigail's escort service, but stated he knew that she worked at Abigail's when he first met her. He said he had previously telephoned Abigail's to speak with Misty, and he had even gone to the service to see her, but he never used the services offered by Abigail's. He had encouraged Misty to quit the escort service because she wasn't happy working for them, and when she told him she had another job, he had assumed that she had quit. Misty babysat his children on January 31st, and when he got home that night, his son was sick, And so Mark took his son to the doctor. So that was his alibi. When he got back, Misty was gone, and he said he never saw her alive again. After she left, he had no one to watch his children, so he drove to Mississippi that night to pick up his ex-wife so that she could watch the children the next day when he went to work. He denied killing Misty or knowing anything about her murder. Prudence Baxter was a psychiatrist with the Department of Mental Health in Massachusetts. She testified. Remember I told you he was in the mental hospital in Massachusetts for five years? Gerald. Gerald was, yes. Dr. Baxter testified that in 1987, Gerald had been charged with attempted murder and assault of a five-year-old girl. What? Mm Mm-hmm. At that time, he'd been found incompetent to stand trial, and he was placed in the Bridgewater State Mental Hospital. It doesn't sound like he did a lot of time for that. No, He was at the hospital for about five years, and I believed he was just released after that. Was he found guilty? No, he's found incompetent to stand trial. So then they just never tried him and they released him from a hospital? Yes. Okay. Yes. Gerald believed that people were trying to hurt him, and he often had delusions about his ex-wife, Lena. Subsequently, his diagnosis was 
paranoid delusional disorder. Throughout his stay at Bridgewater, Dr. Baxter said Gerald consistently refused to take medication that could have helped him. He maintained that nothing was wrong with him, and he repeatedly asserted that he wanted to go on trial on the attempted murder charge and assault, and he wanted to be found guilty. Finally, in 1990, doctors at Bridgewater got a court order that allowed them to force him to take his medication. At that point, he was placed on Prozac, and his behavior improved markedly. Although he remained somewhat paranoid, the paranoia lessened. Dr. Baxter also testified that she interviewed Gerald on December 4, 1999, which was right before the trial began for the murders of Kathleen and Misty. She interviewed him at the jail in Baldwin County. Dr. Baxter said she first attempted to determine whether he was faking his symptoms because she had read the reports from other psychologists and psychiatrists. She said Gerald admitted to her that he hadn't been truthful during the other evaluations. She believed he was being truthful with her and that he was faking because his description of his symptoms was not exaggerated as it would be when you expect someone that's faking symptoms like they over-exaggerate them. During that evaluation, Gerald told her that he wanted to be executed regardless of whether his attorneys could mount a defense because his paranoid delusions were becoming intolerable. His wish to be executed was consistent with his long history of suicide attempts. And in her opinion, Gerald was still suffering from paranoid delusion disorder, suicidal tendencies, alcohol abuse, and those were all things he was suffering when he was at Bridgewater. How's he able to kill two women but not figure out how to himself? do it himself <laughs> that's ironic himself. i'm just curious know, that's ironic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sure you know how to do it right specifically dr baxter said gerald was still having paranoid delusions about his ex-wife that she was going to hurt him and because of his delusions gerald would get agitated whenever he saw someone who resembled lena because he believed not necessarily that the person was lena but that the person was somehow connected to her or that that person was sent by Lena. Some sort of trigger for him. Yes. Stop it. (sighs) I know. Dr. Baxter, though, couldn't offer any definitive opinion as to his mental state at the time of the murders. Like I mentioned, he pleaded not guilty and not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, and the jury was instructed on the defense of insanity. Okay, get a load of his main defense. His defense wasn't that he was insane at the time of the murders, but rather he didn't murder Misty or Kathleen. Through his defense attorneys, Gerald said that he didn't murder Misty and Kathleen and that he was insane at the time he confessed to murder, meaning that he confessed to a crime he didn't commit in order to fulfill his suicidal tendencies. There are easier ways <laughs> easier to ways die. Than to make the state put you to death, right? I mean, sure. That Dude, is pretty far-fetched. Just jump out into a freeway or something. I mean, if you want to get it done so bad, I don't know. He's full of shit. His attorneys argued that although he may have witnessed the murder or been involved in disposing of Misty's body, that's probably how he knew where her remains were. And... Gerald accused Mark Evans of actually committing the murder. Well, the jury wasn't buying it. Yeah. Surprise. They convicted him of capital murder for Misty and Kathleen's deaths. 
He was also convicted of two counts of attempted murder, two counts of attempted kidnapping in the first degree, two counts of attempted rape in the first degree, and two counts of robbery, all relating to Stephanie Grayson and the woman at Walmart where he hid in her car. The jury recommended by a vote of 10 to 2 that he be sentenced to death for his capital murder conviction. And in Alabama, apparently at the time, you didn't need a unanimous jury. The trial court accepted the jury's recommendation and sentenced Gerald to death. In addition, they sentenced him as a habitual felony offender to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the other charges. His sentences were to run consecutively. So I guess when he died, then the other sentence would start, right? How do you get executed and then carry out a life sentence? You do. You do life. And then I don't know. <laughs> and then you get you and you, executed. Yeah. I know. It's kind of funny. He just was never getting out. Yeah, that was the clear the point. Yeah, that was the clear point. Gerald appealed and the appellate court affirmed his conviction and sentence. They did remand the case back to the trial court and gave the trial court directions to resentence him on the attempted kidnapping conviction because the life sentences he received as a result of those convictions exceeded the maximum sentences authorized by law. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. You have to follow the law. It is believed that Gerald has killed at least seven women, including Kathleen Bracken and Missy McGugan, based on later confessions he had made. The murders happened in Massachusetts, Georgia, and Alabama. Several of the other victims were sex workers that he killed mainly because they looked like his ex-wife, Lena, but at least one was a former girlfriend. One of the women was 22-year-old Peggy Grimes. She was eight months pregnant. Damn it. I know. In June 1993, Gerald met Peggy, who was a sex worker. Gerald had Peggy strip naked before he forced her to the ground and then climbed on top of her like what he did to Kathleen. He then choked her and stabbed her to death in the chest and throat. He murdered her and her unborn baby and even tried cutting the baby out of her abdomen. What the fuck, Tanya? I know, I'm sorry. And he confessed to this? Mm Mm-hmm, he confessed to this. She was reported missing by her mother and her remains were found in September 1993. They went unidentified for five years. Really? Mm-hmm. Even with a fetus? Yes. Even with a fetus. Damn. Finally, in 2004, a jury in Douglas County, Georgia, sentenced him to death for Peggy and her child's murder. Oh, he actually got convicted for yes. it. Yes. So now we know there's at least three that he killed. Yes. So he is officially a serial killer. Yes. But I'm going to tell you about one more. Okay. There's also a Jane Doe that's attributed to him. Oh, man. You know how I am with those Jane I Doe's. Know. God damn. I know. This one is, it's just, all of it's sad. How can you be dead and no one knows who you are? I know. That just makes me so sad. Her partial skeletal remains were found in some woods near the Charlie Brown Airport in Atlanta, Georgia. He Wait, can, I'm sorry. There's a Charlie Brown there's a Airport. There's a Charlie Brown Airport. I know. I just flew into Atlanta. <laughs> I had to I had to Google it to make sure it was a real like, place. Yeah, otherwise you'd look really stupid, wouldn't you? It's the Charlie Brown Airport. Uh, right next to the Snoopy one. <laughs> so it must be some tiny little... Yes, that's what I'm thinking. That's not the airport I flew into. No, I'm sure it wasn't the major airport in Atlanta. Okay, so anyway. Anyway, he confessed to killing her in 1993 or 1994. He said her name was possibly Bodine or Bodine. And it's spelled B-O-D-I-N-E 
or B-O-D-E-A-N. And she was a sex worker who frequented the Alamo Hotel in the Atlanta area. He picked her up at the hotel, and before they left, she told him she had to check on her son before they left, and she went back inside the hotel room for a quick minute. When she came back, they had sex, and then drove to a dirt pit near the airport. He made her get out of the car, pinned her against a tree, and raped her at knife point. He stabbed her to death 30 to 40 times, and Gerald said while he was killing her, she never cried or screamed. He said it was, quote, kind of strange, end quote. Dead inside. Right. Police attributed this homicide to him because he knew about the crime scene. How, if she has a child? I know. Like, how she does left nobody this know child, who she is? She left this child in a hotel. Like how, how is that possible to not know her name? I know. I know, right? What happened to her son? Was she lying about it? Why would maybe. she go back and come back? I don't Drugs. get it. Drugs? Maybe. I don't, oh, maybe. I don't, I don't know. know. It's all speculation. I'm not a trained professional. <laughs> in case you're wondering where Gerald Lewis is today, he died on death row. On June 25th, 2009, before the state of Alabama could do it themselves. And that is the end of this week's episode. Well, thank you. I know. Alabama's death row is not any place anybody wants to be. I don't think death row anywhere is anywhere anyone wants to be. That's true, but San Quentin, from what I've heard, isn't so bad. Well, they don't kill anyone in San Quentin in California. Scott Peterson seems to be having a great time. I know. Oh, fuck Scott Peterson. I know. He can fuck off. Anyway, thank you all for listening. That was a serial killer I'd never heard. I know. I love I it had when never they're... heard of him. And I'm going to tell you, I found a picture of him on the internet. Is he gross? And he was scary looking. I bet. I mean, I saw one where he had really short hair. And then I saw one where he had really long hair, like, and he was in a suit. So I'm thinking it was from some trial. But he kind of looked like Charles Manson a little bit. See, sometimes you can judge a book by its cover. Right. He just looked a little scary. In case you haven't already, please hit the subscribe or follow button on whatever app you're listening to. And if you'd like to see photos from this episode and find out more information, please go to our website, crimesandconsequences.com. You can also find merchandise on our website. We have some great holiday merchandise. Some awesome designs. And things are on sale right now. There's what I like to call the tree of fuck. (laughs) You have to see it to believe it. We have some shirts that say, um, I'm dead inside, mugs, totes, (laughs) shirts that say, I hate people. I love crimes and consequences and maybe three people. What the fuck, Tanya? That's another (laughs) classic. Yes. So many good ones. So go check it out. Give it to your favorite crimes and consequences fan. What better way to show you love someone? Or get some for yourself. You deserve it. You do. It's a great gift. I have like 12 of them. I know. I I have a bag. I have a sweatshirt. I have some t-shirts. You're wearing one right now. I know. And I bought some for my family. I'm my own best customer. (laughs) You can also go to our social media. We have Instagram and Facebook pages. The handle is Hardcore True Crime. And there's lots of good stuff. Yeah. On our social media. I'm trying to be hip. Stop it. (laughs) Stop it. I know I'm embarrassed I said it. I'm embarrassed for you. I hope you all got a laugh. (laughs) And we want to... Take a second to thank those that support us through our Patreon and our Apple subscriptions. For those who have never heard of it, we have a Patreon page and also an Apple channel. And you can subscribe and get over 100 exclusive episodes that aren't released to the public. Plus, all of our released episodes are ad-free and you get them early. 
Yes. So it's patreon.com slash TNT Crimes or just use the Apple Podcast app. Yes. You go to the Apple Podcast app, look for us, and there's an easy peasy button that says subscribe. Subscribe. So this is a shout out. And Tanya, I'll let you do the pleasures for the people that have subscribed in the past two weeks. We love these people. We do love these people. And if you subscribe, you will also get a shout out in a future episode. So we have Jamise, Bowdy, Bowdy. <laughs> I'm going to say Bowdy, Cammie G, Amber B, Cindy D, Shelby J, Karen M, Athena C, Emma B, Rachel, Dr., Nathan C, Aaron P, Johnny, Denny S, Kimberly R, Siobhan T, Rhonda H, Amy S, Melissa H, Perla D, KL Piactic 1, Kristen B, Aaron328, April G, Alicia, and last but not least, Sibonet. 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 I hope I'm saying it right. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe if I'm wrong, let us know. I think that's it. I think that's it. So until our next episode. Don't kill each other. Bye.